From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Improving global health outcomes and increasing access is inherently good work that is important for everyone. But even important global health interventions don't always consider the barriers and financial risks patients often take on. Eliminating the costs of surgery and other procedures does not always eliminate the other burdens people face all over the world. To better target these obstacles, Dr. Mark Schreim and his team are working to incentivize procedure follow-up decrease no-show rates, and improve global health. Dr. Mark Schreim is the founder and director of the Center for Global Surgery Evaluation at Mass Eyendeer and assistant professor of otolaryngology and global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Schreim, thank you for coming back. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. So since we spoke last, um, you've started a center, a Center for Global Surgery Evaluation, um, could you tell us um, about the center and what the goals are, what you're looking at there? Yeah, so this field of global surgery uh, is, as an academic field, relatively new. Uh, not to say that there haven't been surgeons working in global health. We've been doing it since the 1600s. But sort of as a as an, an academic and a, a policy level thing, bringing surgery to the forefront of policy discussions and academics has been new. Uh, as this field has kind of evolved, a, a lot of the direction that it's evolved in has been twofold. One has been on the sort of higher levels, the ministry level, WHO, UN. Can we get surgery as part of the conversation? Can we get countries to develop plans for surgery in the same way that they have a plan to tackle HIV and a plan to tackle maternal health. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you have implementers who are, you know, and everybody, well-meaning implementers doing stuff, trying to tackle this problem of, of global surgery. What's lost in both of them, the the, the niche that's, that's sort of open in both of those is, is asking the question of, doing all these things, whether they are national surgical plans or advocacy at the UN level or or on the ground implementation, you know, are we doing good? Uh, very often, because because we're coming into this from a well-meaning point of view, uh, we make, sometimes we make an assumption that anything is better than nothing and that just doing something is doing good. And our goal in the center is to turn that assumption on its head and to start asking, you know, by being here, by doing these things, are we actually accomplishing the things that we want to do? So our goal really is to evaluate the implementation writ large, whatever it is, in the global surgery space uh, to come alongside ministries of health, academic institutions, uh, NGOs, industry, who want to make, uh, you know, make a change, make an effect in global surgery, and help evaluate whether that effect is actually happening. Mm -hmm. And so, for people who maybe aren't familiar with this field, could you tell us just basically what is global surgery? I mean, 
you talk about the similarities with um, HIV, AIDS, maternal health. I think people have an idea of like what those interventions look like, but what would a, what does global surgery look like? That's a really good question that is uh, probably not super well defined. Basically, there's a there's an easy definition, which is that any surgery done in the world would fit under global surgery in the same way that global health is sort of health delivery in the world. Uh, narrowing it down, however, uh, global health has been has been primarily the sort of foundings of global of modern global health have been around infectious disease, have been around malnutrition, uh, have have been around those sorts of conditions. And then, you know, HIV in the 1980s, 1990s became part of and a driving force in that. So HIV, TB, uh, malaria have been the kind of the bread and butter of global health. Uh, maternal and child health came onto the scene a little bit later and has kind of become part of the global health conversation. Uh, what the global surgery um, world is saying is that, you know, in, in this focus, we have tended to view certain things like surgery as secondary, as icing on the cake, as, you know, let's take care of nutrition and HIV and uh, et cetera, et cetera, first. And then once we figure that out, then let's let's look at surgery next. Surgery is kind of an add-on, uh, um, almost a, what's uh, uh, the I'm looking for? Like a luxury almost? That's the word. Yeah, so almost a luxury good. Yeah. Uh, but then, right, if I turn to you and I said, look, hey, I'm, I'm founding my own country, and I am right now working on the healthcare system, and I think I can keep all my population healthy without doing any surgery, there's no way you would join my country. Because we don't, as individuals, feel like access to surgery is a luxury good. We feel like if we get into a car accident, we want somebody to be able to, to fix our broken leg. Uh, so that's kind of the, the, the shift now is to say, look, surgery being done in, in the world is as essential as HIV being treated, as nutrition being treated or being, being fixed, uh, as, as maternal and child health being, uh, being improved. That's sort of where we're going with these things. Mm-hmm. And um, so you, you're evaluating the sort of efficacy and impact of different projects. So what are the things that you look at when you're evaluating uh, an intervention or a project? There are a number of things that you can look at. I think the, the question that I, I ask implementers first and foremost is what do you think you're going to accomplish? For example, if the implementation is an educational project, what is it that you, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this educational project? What is it that you want to accomplish on the back end of it? Uh, because that's, you know, it's as, as people who come in as external evaluators, it's not really my role necessarily to say, this is what I think you should be accomplishing. Uh, it's my role to be able to help you see if you actually have accomplished the thing that you want to accomplish. That said, I think there are a number of different ways that we can, number of different um, frameworks we can use to measure impact. One of the ones that I like the most is based on the concept of universal health coverage. And UHC is a, is a big thing in the global health conversation right now. It is one of the UN's sustainable development goals. Uh, so achieving what they're calling universal health coverage is where every country is supposed to be focusing. And UHC has three domains. 
uh, the, the UN and the WHO have said that for countries to achieve universal health coverage, they have to expand on three axes. They have to expand the services that they offer. So they have to improve the health of their population. They have to expand the people that they cover. So they have to improve the equity of their system. And they have to expand protection against financial risk of people going into bankruptcy or selling land and livestock to achieve, to, to, to get health. So these three, these three axes of health, equity, and financial risk, I think are actually a relatively holistic and relatively patient-centered way of evaluating an impact of an intervention. So f- for, the, for interventions that are sort of direct patient care interventions, I want to fix all the cleft lips in this region in, in India. Uh, I think that's a really good way to evaluate it because you take into account things in addition to the cleft lip that the patient or the family might actually care about, like having to sell their land. But then again, if you're looking at an educational intervention or if you're looking at an economic intervention, there are other other frameworks that can be used to see if that was effective. Mm-hmm. I mean, <clears throat> I think... Part of my thinking with the question about what is global health is, or what is global surgery, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you say global health, it means like non-Western or like non-first world, you know, you say, and what you're talking about with the universal health care metric, it's like, we're struggling to get to that here. So how does that, I don't know, how do you reconcile that kind of duality of it's like global surgery, but we're also grappling with these same issues. I, I don't, I don't think it's a duality at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you talk to almost anybody in global health and they will say that global is local. We, mm-hmm. we have the same issues of financial risk that patients uh, undertake to get their surgery, their cancer treatment, we have the same issues of, of an inequity in health systems and in access. So absolutely, I think there's, so I, I don't think that global health is just what happens in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. I think global health is what happens right outside our doors here in Boston and what happens in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. So I think it's both. There is a fair amount, I think, of opportunity for bi-directional innovation. There are things that I am trying, for example, in, in Guinea, which I think we'll talk about later, that if they're successful, there's no reason that we can't also try them here in you know inner city Boston or New York or wherever else, uh, because the the sort of the specific problems may be unique to each individual setting, but the underlying issues of achieving universal health coverage they are issues in the U.S. as much as they are issues in Sub-Saharan Africa. So the study you're working on in Guinea, um, could you tell us about what that study is? Um, you're looking at prohibitive surgery costs. Yes. So the let me let me take a, a bit of a step back. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few years ago, we estimated that about thirty percent of the world's disease burden requires surgery at some point in the disease course. So thirty percent, which is a big a big number. At the same time. Uh, 4.8 billion people, 5 billion people don't have access to surgery because of barriers of uh, affordability, timeliness, safety, and availability. So four sort of main barriers that we looked at in that 4.8 billion. 
the biggest of those barriers, the, the one that if we fixed everything else and didn't fix that one that still had the biggest proportion of people not having access to surgery was affordability. On the flip side of it, people who get surgery every year, so about 315 million operations are done every year around the world, 81 million people, so about a quarter of those, uh, 15 times the size of, of, uh, of Boston, 81 million people are driven into poverty by the cost of surgery. So they get their surgery, mm-hmm. and yet they sell their farm or they sell their livestock to, to get it. So the financial barrier is a huge one. A common response to the fact that the financial barrier to surgery is, is huge is to say, well, let's make surgery free. Let's subsidize surgery. Let's make it free at the point of care. So if you can make it to the hospital, then your C-section is free. There are, and this is a very common policy, especially actually around C-sections, but there are hidden costs to these things. So the surgery itself, the incision and taking the baby out might be free, but uh, getting there is a big barrier. Um, And it's specifically the barrier that I'm focusing on here. Uh, A lot of of NGOs, of non-governmental organizations, surgical charities that are working use this free surgery model. Um, that, you know, when you make it to our hospital, you make it to our hospital ship where I work, et cetera, you make it to the plane, then the surgery itself that you're going to get is free. The no-show rate for patients coming to some of these NGOs, these non-governmental organizations, is still fairly high. Uh, In a paper we published in 2017, the no-show rate uh, with this organization that I've been working with, it could be as high as 28% of patients who are scheduled for their surgery but don't show up. And if you follow up with the patients who haven't shown up and you ask them why, they'll give you a bunch of reasons, but the most common reason that they cite is that they can't afford it. They can't afford the free surgery, and what they can't afford actually is primarily the cost of transportation and or the opportunity cost of being away from their farms, their stores, their jobs for the time necessary to have the surgery and the recovery. So despite the fact that we have quote-unquote free surgery, there's still an economic barrier. So what we wanted to do in this study is actually address those hidden costs, those ancillary costs, because often, not always, but often in the design of health systems, transportation, food, lodging, it's kind of off the side. It's mm-hmm. not something that we really think about very much, but wanted to see what effect addressing these ancillary costs of surgery would have on compliance with scheduled surgery. So what we're doing is we're utilizing an instrument called a cash transfer, uh, which is an instrument that's been used in the development world a fair amount. Uh, Essentially, not to put too fine a point on it, but it's a bribe. Um, (laughs) It's a small transfer of cash. Payment. The payment, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a small transfer of cash to to promote, to incentivize health-promoting behavior. Mm -hmm. Uh, An example of this, there was a study that was done, I think here out of Harvard, uh, that looked at... Uh, people getting HIV tests, and they were finding that women would get their HIV tests but wouldn't come back for their test results. They gave a cash transfer. for you. If you came back for your test results, you got a small amount of money, and all of a sudden coming back for your test results you know, went up, which mm-hmm. is great because that's how you want to treat people. Right. Doing the tests is, is insufficient by itself. So we're doing the same thing. We're using a cash transfer to see if we can promote patients who have been scheduled for and approved for surgery actually promote their their compliance with their scheduled surgery. Uh, the most cash transfers that have been done have been done in that conditional sort of way that I just described. So if you come back for your HIV test results, then we will 
give you the cash transfer. It's conditional on you doing the thing, then we give you the small payment. So we're testing that. We're testing a conditional cash transfer. If you come back for your surgery, we will pay for your transportation. Uh, but we're also testing an unconditional cash transfer. So in this particular arm, uh, two to four days before you're supposed to leave your house to make it to the surgery, we are transferring to your mobile banking account this the, the cash transfer. And we are sending you a text message with that transfer that says this is for your transportation to your surgery. But we obviously will have no control over how patients actually use that money. Uh, this is perhaps more in line with traditional economic theory, but feels a little bit weirder because we're just giving people money and we don't really have control over right. what they what they do with it. Uh, the study is ongoing. It's a randomized controlled trial. We're, we're ongoing with the study, and so I don't have results on you know how well the, the groups are doing. Mm -hmm. But the, the goal, the primary outcome for the study, the primary goal for this study is to, is to see what the compliance rate is. My secondary goal, this is going to be pending time and funding, but my secondary goal is to follow up with these patients a year or two later and ask questions about their health. Uh, was the cash transfer sufficient for them? Did it allow them to get their surgery somewhere closer to them? You know, maybe they didn't get there. So maybe they didn't show up for their surgery where they were supposed to, but maybe they could get it somewhere else. Uh, mm -hmm. But also to follow up with them on that other side of things, that financial risk side of things. If they got their surgery, did they have to still sell land or right. avoid school fees or do other things to finance their their surgery? Or, or was this sufficient? So the cash transfer, it sounds like when we, you know, when people do trials and they pay participants um and there's a lot of discussion and theory about how much is too much to pay people would you induce them um is that a concern that you have with this i mean I'm, i imagine it's a little different because these people need surgery it's not like you're paying them to take a experimental medication um but are there is the size of the transfer something that you've thought about and are there any other issues with the cash transfers that you've come across or that you think about? There's a lot. Uh, so the, the size of the cash transfer is uh, of particular interest. Uh, a lot, but not all, of the cash transfer studies that have been done somewhat arbitrarily choose the size. Uh, this is this, I'm painting with broad strokes, and there are, there are studies that don't do this, but often it's arbitrary. Uh, you know, we're going to give you 50 cents or $5 or $32. Uh, and then if the cash transfer at that size doesn't work, we decide that the cash transfer didn't work. And we haven't really, there's, haven't been, there hasn't been a lot of examination of the effect of the dose itself. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, though, that's not how we design drugs. Right? If I had a cancer drug, right. I wouldn't be like, you know what, 100 milligrams. And then if 100 milligrams doesn't work, then I say the whole drug doesn't work. Right. Right? We test different doses. So actually, the first part of the study, uh, prior to even doing the randomized control trial, what I wanted to do was see if we could find an optimal dose, a dose, sort of a, a cash transfer size that's big enough to incentivize showing up, but that's small enough that it's not just let's pay for everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to do that, to find that sweet spot dose is going to require, was going to require exploring the entire space of possible doses. You know, we got to go from zero to whatever to see if we actually find that inflection point, which is not something that you can do 
in vivo. It's not something we can do, you know, with people. So I had to do this, you know, in silico. So I built a a model of the Guinean healthcare system with uh, patients uh, using a technique called agent-based modeling. So in agent-based modeling, each patient and each hospital is a self-contained unit within the model that responds to its own sort of internal stochastic rules. And using a choice function that incorporated, you know, how old was the patient? Were they male or female? How educated were they? How far away was the hospital? What's the cost, et cetera? How much is the agent's income? Using a choice function that incorporates all these things, uh, I could then run the model out and vary the size of the cash transfer that I was going to give them and see how the agents responded to that. Turned out, I haven't published this yet, but it turned out that the answer is yes, there's an inflection point. Mm But the inflection point is, let's pay for everything. Um, before that, any any higher increase in the in the cash transfer size decreases the no-show rate. Once you hit paying for everything, then essentially things flatten out and other barriers to care like distance or quality, et cetera, those start to dominate. But mm-hmm. the cost barrier dominates up until you pay for everything. So long-winded answer to say, Yes, I think the dose is important. So what we did in this particular case was we set the dose of the cash transfer to be your transportation costs because the surgeries are already free. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that does lead to a couple of questions. One, it does lead to the question of are we are we sort of over-incentivizing patients to take risks that they wouldn't otherwise take because surgery is not a risk-free right. uh, procedure. Uh Maybe, perhaps. I, I, I don't know that that's... I, I don't even know if I would know how to look for that. Um, I think some of the other uh, concerns are... Uh, two, are informed consent in this particular case, which I can talk about in a second. But also, you know, is the cash transfer size so big that it somehow distorts the market itself? Um, and in this particular case, the cash transfer size was approximately nine U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. So probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably small enough. You know, we ended up buying bags of food and staples and oil and matches, et cetera, that were that were the equivalent of of nine dollars. And they're not a lot. They're enough to feed a family for a day or two, but not you know not a huge amount. What's the range of surgeries that that people in your study are coming in for? So nobody in the study is coming in with emergent surgery. These right. are all elective surgeries. They range, so they're, they cover uh, a number of specialties, and they range from things like burn contractures. They're sort of the, the typical global surgery problems, cleft lip and palate, burn contractures, goiters, tumors on the face, tumors in the body, uh, bowed legs, club feet, um, obstetric fistulas, so things that are non-emergent, but things that are varying degrees of severity. Mm-hmm. And in the final analysis, absolutely, those, at least the type of surgery, if not the severity of the surgery, is going to be analyzed. Yeah. That plus the baseline level of disability that the patients report because of their, because of their their condition. Mm-hmm. So at some, you could say. So could you maybe tease that out? Like, we can tease out. Uh, like, would this person have come in, and did they? Is the risk that they 
I don't know. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, we do have a control group in this study. Mm-hmm. Uh, so That doesn't get any money. That's complicated. I'll explain that okay. in a second. But mostly doesn't. Okay. Um, we do have a control group that we can compare the other two groups to. Uh, the control group, initially, the way the study was designed, it was the way it was envisioned, the control group wasn't going to get anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, this is being done in a, uh, a West African country where the literacy rate is, is not huge, the numeracy rate is not huge. So explaining what's happening, if I explained to you that you were going to be part of a randomized control trial, you would know what I was talking about. Right. Uh, this well, I a, do work for Harvard Catalyst, so, so I've you definitely learned a lot about, about randomized right. control trials. Uh, yeah. But this, you know... It, Translating that into a culture that isn't mine yeah. um, it was was very difficult. Yeah, so you were going to talk about the informed consent. Yeah, yeah. so I'm going to talk about sort of both of those. So yeah. part of, as you know, when the study was envisioned, it was envisioned that the control group would get, quote-unquote, nothing. They would actually get their free surgery. So it's not like they're getting nothing. It's they're getting nothing in addition to their free surgery. Right. It was felt really strongly by our implementing partners that this would, and I quote, cause riots. <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> if there's anything you don't want to do, it's, it's cause cause a riot. Riot. exactly. So, yeah. uh, we went back and forth about how we could actually do this. And what's happening with the control group now is that they're also getting the $9, mm-hmm. but they're getting it on the day of enrollment. So temporarily distant from the day of their surgery, and they're getting it as a bag of food and staples, et cetera. So something that's orthogonal, something that's not really related to their transportation and not easily fungible into paying for transportation. Like they would have to go and sell, you know, two books of matches, plus some soap, plus some, et cetera, et cetera, to regain, to recoup that money uh, to pay for transportation. So it's a control-ish group. Um, <laughs> everybody is getting $9 just in sort of different right. ways. Okay, so talk about the informed consent right. issue. The, the translation itself from, not just from English into, the, into French and the local languages, but even just sort of the concepts mm-hmm. was difficult. Right. Uh, and it required finding somebody who was conversant in both cultures uh and we did that we did this sort of translation uh we did the language translation beforehand you know paid the official translators etc but when we did the the actual sort of translation into the culture a couple of things came out in in the groups that we were working with one was that consenting one one one-on-one wasn't going to fly uh you know we are a very individualistic culture uh, it's not necessarily true of other cultures. And in fact, that consenting in a group was better. And so we would consent three or four patients and their caregivers at a time so that everybody could ask their questions. And if somebody else didn't understand, they could, you know, ask their questions for them, et cetera. That was, that was novel, uh, to me. Um, but it ended up, I think, making people feel, um, I think, I think it, it's hard for me to tell, right? I'm, I'm from the outside, but it seemed to, seemed to increase understanding of what was happening. The other thing is uh, this idea of randomization. You know, what does this mean? How do I assign you a number? How do I know that you aren't biasing it against me? You know, uh, how do I know that you're just you're giving the money to the people you like better and you're giving me the food or et cetera? Uh, so this idea came from a missionary that had been living in Guinea for about 40 years. Um, so, you know, as much of a bridge between two cultures as possible. Uh, but his idea was that the games of chance are very common, uh, which I didn't know, very common in Guinea. And mm-hmm. that there's this idea that whatever the dice roll is or whatever the game of chance is, it's what 
the universe, God, whatever, would have willed. Uh, so that's how the randomization ended up being framed. Uh, hmm. Participants would literally draw out of an envelope a slip of paper that had a number on it, one, two, hmm. or three. We explained what the what numbers were, what the groups were, and then we learned the word for game of chance and explained it as a game of chance. And there were there definitely were, were patients who did not want to participate um, for whatever reasons, did not want to participate. But it was a it was a small number. We got a fairly high uh, participation rate. And once it was explained like that, uh, it sort of all made sense. And people were happier or less happy with what group they chose. But it was never like, oh, this is unfair. Right. What do you hope are is the outcome of this study? Um, is it just that everybody who needs surgery is able to get it, or is it is there something else? So when I started talking about the study, I I kind of led with this idea that cost and specifically the ancillary costs, the hidden costs of care, are a big barrier. But I also talked about the fact that they also they have these downstream side effects of pushing people into into impoverishment, and then I told you about the study, and all I'm really measuring is is showing up for your surgery. Uh, you know, I, I would love, as I said before, I would love to get follow up on what is the actual effect on health and financial risk. What is the effect on are, are we getting necessarily poorer patients? Are we getting less well served uh, patients? Um, so I think that's, yes, the primary outcome is people who need their surgery are getting their surgery. But I think the other outcomes, the the um, the protective outcomes of things like this are, I think, really interesting to me. Uh, to translate it back into the U.S., uh, there's a, you know, under Obamacare, um, Medicaid was supposed to be expanded and then then states could have the choice on whether they expanded it, and some states did and some states didn't. Uh, and so there have been some great papers comparing states that mm -hmm. did and didn't expand Medicaid. Now, if you think about Medicaid expansion, it is a financial intervention. Right. Right. It's simply, it is a cost-based intervention. That's yeah, all it really is. Yeah, it's like saying is. we're going to pay for this. We're going to pay for this. Yeah. And if you look at some of the papers that have been published out of it, uh, not all of them, but many of the papers at two years after Medicaid expansion show not a huge impact on health using the measures that the authors decided to measure the health and patients in states that didn't expand Medicaid and those that did is about the same. Uh, so some people have taken that to be like, well, Medicaid expansion is just not working. Uh, it was a waste of money. It was a boondoggle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, if you dig into these papers, they also look at these protective effects on know, did I have to go into debt? Did I have to go into bankruptcy? Did I, you know, lose my job, et cetera? And in Medicaid expanding states, the, across the board, there is this protective mm. effect. We, you know, in, in a lot of sort of health evaluation, we have tended to focus only on health, but patients don't. You know, patients care about these other things. We as clinicians aren't trained to talk about them you know, if you were to ask, if I were to see you as a patient and I were to say, order a CAT scan for you and you asked me how much that would cost me, I don't actually know. Right. Right. And yet these are things that, that are very important to our patients. Right. Uh, so that that sort of protective ability that, that we might be able to accomplish, even if we aren't getting 100 percent 
of our patients back for surgery. I think that's still really important. Hmm. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Shrine. It's great to have this conversation with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Next time on Think Research. A really close friend of mine, her mother, um, she basically said, you know, you should pursue medicine. I think that that would be a great option for you. And I had never really even thought about it. I don't have anyone in my family who went to college. So the idea of becoming a physician seems so far-fetched. Dr. David Sanchez tells his personal story that led him to a career in research. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.